This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to bring you stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and every sphere of American life. We tell you good stories, redeeming stories, uplifting stories, and tough stories, too. And today, we hear from Jeff Katz. He's a radio host in Richmond, Virginia, and he's also a columnist for the Boston Herald. And here he shares his deeply personal story about his teenage daughter, Julia, who has what doctors call global developmental delays and disabilities. And all of that means is that she functions physically and mentally at the level of a toddler. Here's Jeff reading a note that he wrote to his daughter. Dear Julia, I'm writing you this note on March the 7th, 2018. Today is the day that you turn 15 years old. It's an interesting day for me and for mom, but it's another day for you. You're not like other kids, my sweet. You've never made a big deal of your birthday. You've never asked us for any type of a special gift. Not for your birthday, not for Hanukkah, not for Christmas. You've treated each and every day in the same way. Mom will wake you up and you'll have a smile on your face when you see her. She'll play some of your music and you'll smile even more. You may laugh or giggle or squeal, but there will not be any words. You won't complain about having to go to school. You won't be happy to hear that it is a snow day. You won't celebrate the fact that today is 15 years since you were born. Most 15-year-old girls would be thinking about clothing, college, or a car. By 15, many dads have already had to warn their daughters about some dopey boy. But today, you'll watch your favorite episode of Jack's Big Music Show, enjoy your cereal, and be on the lookout for cookies wherever you can find them. Mom and I know that you will be with us as long as we're alive. But we worry about what happens after we're gone. You have two wonderful brothers, and I pray every day that we have raised them well enough to know that they will need to look after you someday. You may be our middle child, but you'll always be the baby. Even as you get older, according to the calendar, as mom told me yesterday, you are timeless. You'll always be my pipsqueak, despite the fact that the years are flying by. No, we're not exploring potential careers or making plans for your wedding. We're still hoping that we'll be able to help you move from diapers to the potty someday. You live today the same way you did when you were about 18 months old. You don't speak, and you only recognize a few words, but oh, the words that you know. Kisses and cookies. No matter how filled up you are, there's always room for a cookie or two. You don't understand when I ask you how your day was but you become laser beam focused when you hear the crinkle of the wrapper on a package of something sweet. No matter how sweet that candy, it's still eclipsed by your genuinely sweet smile. So many people live their lives asking for things, demanding things, accumulating things. Most people never take the time to stop and savor a piece of cake or breathe deeply to appreciate a gentle breeze like you do. I hear people in this world use horrible, insulting language to describe kids like you, and I want to shake them, yell at them. 
Some mock disabled kiddos like you, and I feel like crying. You don't understand their words, but I do. Sometimes I really wish I did not. We never thought you would crawl, let alone walk, but you showed us. Your situation and challenges and disabilities have caused me to question my belief in God on some days and have served to strengthen it on others. You don't speak, but somehow you are able to brighten my days in ways that I never imagined. Without a single solitary word, you've made me a better man and touched countless people. Hearing you cry ties my stomach into knots, but your giggle is truly the happiest sound that I have ever heard. I know you'll never read this, nor would you understand this if I were to read it to you. So let me just say, kisses and cookies, Jules Bagools. I tell you today what I have told you on every March the 7th since 2003. Daddy loves you more than you will ever know. And thank you for that reading, Jeff. You've made me a better man, he wrote. Your giggle is the happiest sound I've ever heard. On Julia's unexpectedly learning how to walk, Jeff told the Boston Herald that, quote, it was one of the proudest days of my life, one of the happiest days of my life. But I also have to tell you, it's a terrifying situation because Julia is like a toddler. She has no real understanding of, oh, the stove is hot, or... I could fall here or trip you there. We're thrilled that she's trying to explore on her own a little bit, and we're terrified at the same time. And this is true for all of us parents, but even more so for Jeff and his bride. Jeff has said that it's tough to realize that he'll never get to embarrass Julia by dancing with her at her wedding. But, quote, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. End quote. Last but not least, he said these words, quote, She's never spoken a word. She's never said a word to anybody. But she's touched more people in her 15 years on this earth than I ever have. Her joy is pure. To me, she's like the face of God. She's the essence of good, and she shares her joy with everybody. And to everyone out there who's in a similar situation, we share these thoughts. Share them to us. Share them with us here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Jeff Katz's story, his daughter Julia's, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're about to hear the story of Michael Cole. And that's a name you may not know, but you know the character he played if you're old enough. He played Pete Cochran in The Mod Squad. That Steve McQueen-like handsome character. The rugged good looks. The girls, oh, they loved him. The guys, they wanted to be him. He had that edge. He was sensitive. He was tough. He was a guy who didn't back down from a fight. He never looked for one, but he wouldn't back down. Well, Michael Cole, he recently released a searing autobiography, I Played the White Guy, and it is a tough read, but it's an important one. And this story has the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, and my goodness, Hollywood couldn't come up with a story like this, as this man struggles with his demons from the earliest time on. It's an honest confession, and Monty Montgomery, our intern, well, he does a heck of a job here with this story. And let's begin, as we always begin, or try to here, with the voice of the subject. Here's Michael Cole. We were on location in a place called Malibu, California, and the phone rang, a guy gave it to me, and he said, it's from Dallas. And I said, I don't know anybody in Dallas, but maybe it's a fan or a friend, or so I better respond. And the voice on the other end says, hey, they called me Mickey because of the Irish, right? Hey, Mickey, uh, it's your dad. I bloody froze, which I'm doing right now. I just froze. I said, my dad is dead. And he said, no, 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 you're real, Father. I said, shut up. If you ever call me again or try to get a hold of me, I will kill you. And you stay away from Ma. You stay away from Ted. You stay away from me. Because if you don't, I will kill you. You have no idea the pain that you've caused our family. Actor Michael Cole never knew his father. He had left him and his family when Cole was in the first years of his life. A life that would be chocked full of twists, turns, and struggle. But there was one person in his life who remained his rock. His mother. We called her Ma. <laughs> we would just have to wait sometimes... All day I'd sit up by the bedroom window in the attic and wait for her to come home. And Sometimes she had a night shift somewhere at, at all these jobs that were very difficult. And, but she always made sure that Ted and I were cleaned and we were dressed as good as we possibly could be. She found a job in a really nice clothing store. And when we were about oh, six or seven, we start, we modeled some clothes. And the, the background was uh, the capital of Wisconsin in Madison. And the store let us keep those clothes. So that's what we got through some pretty harsh winters with, etc., etc. Ma worked very hard. One of the most extraordinary struggles for Michael, his brother Ted, and his mother came as a result of a sudden move out of Wisconsin in a futile attempt to find Michael's father. We're only two, three years old, and 
my mom said, guess what, boys? We got, I remember this so exactly. I got tickets to go to Dallas. We're going to go find your dad. I got very excited. But, so we got on the train and we went down to Dallas. Couldn't find him anywhere. I know he ducked out of town somewhere. I don't really know that, but that's what I think. And now we're broke, living in this beat to hell uh, little room somewhere. So we got, she. oh, she sold peanuts at the Cotton Bowl. You know, the big football game in there. And she sold peanuts at, to get us some money so we could get back to Wisconsin. Michael became the protector of his mother at a young age, filling a void that his biological father had opened when he abandoned them. But Michael could not protect himself from a problem that would follow him through adulthood. I was probably about 11 or 12, and things weren't really going any better. We lived in a pretty tough neighborhood. Anyway, I started drinking them pretty soon. I, I kept on drinking. And for years and years, and I would find myself stealing booze from liquor stores around the neighborhood and, and uh, it was no good I, I mean I if you, you could if you were tough let me put it that way because all we was doing was drinking and fighting and if you were tough you drank a lot <laughs> I, I wasn't afraid of a soul except maybe my own during this time Michael's mother became pregnant with the child of her boyfriend a man that Cole had less than a smooth relationship with. I didn't want anybody to to have my ma except me and my brother. And this guy was a military type guy. And whoa, all of a sudden there were restrictions and uh, that I hated restrictions of any kind, any authority. See, I'm starting to get worked up now. Would get in arguments and fights. And I mean fights. He was a big guy, too. He always reminded me of John Wayne. We're arguing like hell over something, and Ma was pregnant. She was sitting in the corner on the rug crying. And I said, you son of a Can't you see what you're doing to Ma? She's going to lose the baby. Is that what you want? And I put your goddamn gun away. And... uh so he looked over at Ma and he had this 45 pointed right up between my eyes. And I didn't give a shit. But he looked over at Ma and slowly put the gun down. Michael's mother would ultimately give birth to a stillborn child. The loss had a profound effect on him. Soon, Michael would be the father of his own child, though. With a girl from a powerful Madison family who was the same age. 16. I went to a, a priest and somebody I knew at the local big paper, the Wisconsin State Journal, and told them about the situation so nothing would happen to that little baby because we both wanted her. I don't care if we were nine or, or, or 38, we wanted that child. 
because I think in the back of my mind, it was, I'm not going to be like my own biological father. And we got married in Milwaukee in an apartment. And there was, I thought, I swore, I said to Mama, I'm done drinking. I'm, I, 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 no more fights. That's it. For, for, I don't know, second or third week, I was at this new school in Milwaukee, which we had moved to from Madison. And I had my foot out a little bit, out from under the desk. And this bastard come along and he kicked my foot. See, I was the new kid, right? But he had no idea what was raging inside. And I found the son of a bitch afterward. And I had made one friend who was a pretty tough guy and we got that bastard. Because he was just, just being an ass. And I slammed his head into the locker and blood was pouring all over the thing. I don't want to sound tough here because I'm not, but it was at that time I was just raging inside. And uh, on the way home from that, if that wasn't enough, I saw a young boy get hit by a car and killed same day. I got to get out of here. I got to get back with Sharon. I, I, I'm going to be 16 pretty soon. I can go to school. My probation officer couldn't even stop me. And uh, next day I got on a Greyhound and went back to Madison. Michael's first marriage would ultimately end in divorce. Michael was lost, lonely, and drinking heavily, and decided to get out of Wisconsin and head west to San Francisco, a move that would change his life forever and fill a hole that had been opened for so long. It doesn't get much more raw than that, folks. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the highs, the lows, and the redemption of Michael Cole, author of I Played the White Guy. His story continues here on Our American Stories. back here at Our American Stories with Michael Cole's story. And when we last left off, Michael had gotten married. He'd had a child, gotten a divorce, left Wisconsin for the West Coast and San Francisco, to be more precise. And it was in the mid-1960s. And what a time in American history, especially out West. Here's Cole with what exactly happened during that transformative time in his life. I loved San Francisco. I, it was everything I, I'd heard it was, you know, the flower child. Myself and Dave, we worked out a couple of things where we could survive, even with the help of some prostitutes that we knew. Then I met a guy who was really, an, an, I loved him, and he helped me out. He happened to be the lighting 
person for uh, a Berkeley, and he asked me if I wanted to go with him, and so I could see what the hell he does. And I said, "Yeah." Something happened. I walked out on the stage and I said, "This is strangely familiar." I started to think about the audience. There, there was finally my family, and I, I, I love that. It's always been my feeling that um, within the arts and the creative community, you don't choose it. It. You. Michael Cole, the man whose childhood had been quickly ended by unimaginable loss, now had a purpose: to be on stage. Michael started hanging out around theaters during this time, and soon the gears started to spring into motion. I, well, I, I was bartending right across from a big, beautiful theater in Hollywood, and. Uh, the the cast would come in afterwards, and they would talk about acting. And one night, a producer came in, and he said, "If you you want to be an actor, huh, Michael?" And I said, "I think so. Yeah, something's beating in here that's not leaving me alone." And he said, "What you got to do first? You got to study." So he said, "Go see Estelle Harmon." She was the head of UCLA drama department. She was at Universal Studios, handling the new talent, etc., etc. So I, I don't know my ass from first base about any of this, except that something was beating very much in my heart. So I, I went in, into Estelle's workshop, and there was this very pretty lady sitting there behind her desk, and she said, "Are you Michael?" So she said, "I want to read a scene with you." I didn't even know what the hell that meant, and uh, I'll never forget it. It was a scene from All My Sons. It was about during the war. Woody Robinson was making bad planes, and some of the flyers were getting killed. And anyway, we read that, and I'm his son, and I got really, really, really pissed. We had the scene was about them arguing. Fell asleep early this morning in Atlanta. Yeah, I know. I heard it crying. And when we stopped, I, I didn't know what to do. My hands were sweating, and, uh, and and I looked up, and Estelle just said, "I want you to come back, and I won't charge you because I know you don't have any place to live." But that was only the start for Cole's success in Hollywood, and soon another massive break would come his way. There was a student at Estelle's, a girl, and she was going to do a scene at Paramount, and uh, for a film that that she was going to be in, or hopefully be in. And so she asked me if I would go. It was from Picnic, and she asked me if I would uh, come over and be her partner, scene partner, and thing. And so, uh, sure, what first time ever in the studio ever at Paramount. And we、um, walked in and said hi to the casting person, etc., etc. And we did the scene. It really went very well.、Uh, so they took her. She got the job. They took her in the back, and I was leaving. Casting director says,、uh, "Michael, wait a minute. 
I want you to take this. You go study it and come back at four o'clock. Why? <laughs> because Sterling Siliphant was going to be there and he was getting ready to do a series based on Sunset Boulevard. And we go back over there for, and I walk in the same day and sure as hell there's Siliphant sitting there, very handsome man. Uh, he could have been on either side of the camera. He said, here, read this, and he gave one to the girl. And the scene went wonderful, because this was a tough James Dean kind of guy. And I pulled something off, I don't know. I was kind of pissed and kind of, you know, I was, I was uptight. The guy was like Dean. And, you know, that didn't hurt I, at all. So after we do the reading, I was shaking. It's, it's just my hands are shaking now. Mr. Siliphant stood up and walked over to me face to face, like about six inches from my face, and said, Michael, I want to do this series with you. Almost fainted. Unfortunately for Michael, that series would never pan out due to Siliphant having a falling out with the network. But that didn't stop him. His name was now out in the Hollywood network, and people were noticing. Word got around to Aaron Spelling's casting director. And this agent, who I immediately signed with, said, "Uh, can you come over? There's a new show that Aaron Spelling is doing, and he's going to be a giant producer. And uh, I said, well, yeah, I still had my James Dean thing going. Yeah, but what? What's it about? It's called Mod Squad. That's the dumbest shit I ever heard. And so I walked in Aaron's office, and there's this tiny little man, one of the most powerful people in the industry, sitting behind the desk. Aaron, Aaron uh, launched into his spiel about Mod Squad, etc., etc. I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. What the hell does Mod Squad mean? I said, it's about police. And right away, that caught him. My attitude caught him. Because everybody else would be Googling and say, oh, this is so neat. This is so wonderful. Kids are going to love this. That. This is really dumb. And you want me to play a cop that busts other kids? Are you kidding? I would be with them. That's kind of the idea. You're never going to carry a gun. You're never going to... We're going to deal with drugs and the wars, the environment, uh, uh, racism. Because you've got the three of us, you know, black, white, and blonde. Child abuse, even domestic violence, none of that stuff was ever touched by any TV show. And, uh, and he said, I, I, I told him, I said, I think still this sounds like a dumb idea. And I'm going, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Aaron jumped up on his desk and he said, Michael, Michael, don't go. Don't go, that's exactly what I want. 
The Mod Squad would run for a total of five seasons, racking up six Emmy nominations, four Golden Globe nominations, and would have a massive cultural impact upon America. But all good things have to come to an end. And the end was hard for Michael. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story. Michael Cole's book, I Played the White Guy, and my goodness, it only gets more interesting. Michael Cole's story, here on Our American Story. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Michael Cole. When we last left off, his massive hit show, The Mod Squad, well, it was off the air. It had left a cultural impact, but what happened next to Michael Cole? Well, let's take a listen to the last part of this remarkable story. First of all, it was the first time I really kind of had a family with Clarence and Peggy and Tyg Andrews. And even the crew, we had a beautiful crew that became my family. And so it was, it was rough. I was really drinking. What helped me along that line, I was got to do some really good plays. Uh, one was uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and we did that down in New Orleans. But it, it eventually wound down to not, I moved, I got a divorce, a second one. And I moved up into the woods in a, in a log cabin, literally, me and my two cats. I, I didn't know where the hell I was going. But somewhere along the very young age, I realized this, this thing called loneliness was always hanging around. All right, so you're a little lonely, you watch the other kids play with their dads and families, etc. But I made it up in my mind that this loneliness was very loyal and it was not gonna leave me. So I simply turned it around and made it my buddy. And it worked for many, many years. Finally, I had to, you know, I got out of that log cabin and, um, which I loved. But anyway, I went, walked into this bar where, and there was a friend I saw at the bar and uh, a girlfriend, you know, a friend's friend. And uh, I said, hey, how you doing? And she said, fine, fine. Michael, I want you to meet my friend, Shelly. And uh, she said, are you kidding? Shelly is beautiful. And she's intelligent, really intelligent. And she's still one of the guys. So there was this bastard sitting on the bar stool next to her that kind of kept leaning into her. So right away, I got my shoulder down in there between them. I started squeezing up to, which I'm doing right now, <laughs> squeezing up to the bar and said, the f*** he want? And uh, rah, 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 then he went away. And Shelly and I started talking. And that was 
Oh, something happened really neat. I was talking to Shell, and all of a sudden, in my heart, I hear, uh, it's her, Michael. It's her. And I said, I know, Ma. I know. I swear to God that happened. <laughs> and from that night on, Jesus, 25 almost 30 years ago we've never been apart Michael's drinking was getting worse and Shelley went the distance to try to get help for him going as far as to take classes herself on how to deal with alcoholics but nothing was working and something more had to be done well, she had found a sponsor like you know for AA stuff that really wasn't working out you think you can do it on your own etc etc well Within two or three days from that, they had an intervention on me. And uh, I went to, uh, two days after that, I went to Betty Ford's. And uh, she, she was wonderful, but man, I thought I got drafted. That's, some of these places are tough and they don't, they're, they're there not to screw around. Take off your clothes, blah, blah, blah. Search, they search every cavity on your body, because a lot of drugs will be snuck in, and, uh, and wherever you could put booze too, I guess. And you know what, I, like I said, I, I felt I got drafted. I couldn't stand the fact that she, to watch the taillights when Shelly left, we both were crying and stuff like that. But uh, in, a, in, in a couple of days, got to be a little better then a little better every day was you whatever like dorm like place you were in you got I got real close to some of the guys like there was a couple of guys from Vietnam there that were alcoholics and one guy I remember oh man he was a helicopter pilot and he landed down in the, in the grass, like with and flattened the grass with the blades and, and uh, guys came running out of the brush around there, jumped into the helicopter and he took off. Well, when he said, we gotta get out of here, he turned to his buddy, his co-pilot, and his face was gone. And he like became one of my best friends. And I understand he's doing fine now. I hope there's a lot of, I mean, I don't hope, but I, well, I hope you're listening if there's anybody out there that needs some help, because that's one of the roughest ones I ever heard. And he became an alcoholic, and uh, we became close, and again, like I said, uh, I know he's doing really good today. It worked the other way too, kind of. Uh, We had like a reflecting pool reflection pool, whatever you call it. And uh, I would go out there and sit by myself and just think, you know, it wasn't that long ago where you had your name on every marquee in the country kind of thing. And now you're sitting here thinking about how you screwed up everything and how booze did it. And one day a guy comes walking over to me and he says, hey, you're Michael Cole, right? Yeah. He said, My name is Mickey Mantle. 
almost fainted. You all got, you all in the same uh, boat. Shelley and Jennifer came down. There was a thing called Family Week, and everybody's a little bit shaky that their loved ones are going to come down. And what you do is you sit in the middle of a room, face to face in a chair, and then the whole, all the rest of the Elkies sit around you in a big circle. And you sit there in the middle of the room, and this person tells you how much you've hurt them. And I'm starting to cry right now again. My, my daughter was Daddy, when you and Mama were fighting and that kind of thing. Whoa. We just held each other for a long time. And then I had to do it again with Shelly. And I, I got to know at that moment that uh, we would be together forever. And uh, Shell basically said the same thing. And she couldn't do it anymore, and et cetera, et cetera. And so I totally understood. And uh, we had the whole joint was crying. Man, it was very, very powerful. And uh, we still are 20 some, 25, 6, 7 years later. We've never been apart. Cool would get better over time, and today is sober and living a much better life. He credits Betty Ford and his wife Shelley for that, but also something central to his life today his faith. First of all, it came really strong when I said before about the alcoholism that you have to have a somehow some kind of spiritual foundation. This is the truth. My mother called me at work one day. She was crying, almost hysterical. And there was a crucifix. I've never said this to anybody else. But if it can help somebody out there, it's true. And she was crying, and she took me into the bedroom, and she had a crucifix that was on her mother's casket. And she said, look. And it was just a little brown wooden and plaster-like painted gold body and from the crown on the head, there were little tiny drips of blood. And f- even to the slice on the side where the spear was, and down the inside of the legs and onto the feet where the nails were. And they were all very, very frightened, and I just, that's when I really started calling on my buddy Christ. And I took off with him, and we've remained the same. And great job on that, Monty. And that's Monty Montgomery, our Hillsdale intern. And thank you to Michael Cole for this raw and unflinching look 
at his own life. And that scene, boy, I mean, I, I'm holding back the tears as he's listening to his daughter and then his wife talk to him about what he'd done to her. And my goodness, that he was willing to listen, to bear it, and to do something about it. And then telling that last story about his buddy Christ and that cross and how it helped him carry over the finish line and become the man he'd always wanted to be, the father he'd always wanted to be, and the husband he'd always wanted to be. Michael Cole's story. This is Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell every kind of story here, from art to sports to business and, of course, history. And we do it this day in history every day, and we love books. And we've done David McCullough and the Wright Brothers, and we've done that great, great book about Mark Twain's last and epic tour in his life to, well, get some money back because he'd been broke from so many adventures and misadventures in the stock market and in business. And a book review caught our attention in the Wall Street Journal, and the title was The Franklin House Divided. And here's how it started. On the 4th of July, 1776, Benjamin Franklin was in Philadelphia, having helped to draft the Declaration of Independence while his son, the governor of New Jersey, was under arrest in Connecticut, having been branded an enemy of his country for persisting in his royal duties and opposing the revolution. In less than a year, William Franklin would be taken to the notorious Litchfield Gowl, a destination for, among others, traitors who had abused their privileges in lighter incarceration. And that led us to the guest that joins us now. The book review was for The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House, and Daniel Mark Epstein joins us now. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be with you. And Daniel, tell us, what drew you to this book? Well, I was always interested in Benjamin Franklin from the time I was a kid, you know, as being one of the most versatile Americans, a man who was a great inventor, uh, and probably the, the, the first great scientist in terms of uh, electricity, and of course everybody knows the story about Ben flying the kite, and I remember seeing the woodcut of, uh, of Benjamin Franklin flying the kite with his little boy, and I wondered what would it be like to have Benjamin Franklin as a father. I mean, a man who was not only a great inventor, but um, created the militia in Pennsylvania in order to defend the frontier against the Indians, and then you know created the first postal system in Pennsylvania and the University of Pennsylvania. And then, of course, became uh, one of the greatest American patriots during the Revolution. What would it be like to be that man's son? Uh, and then, of course, I found out that um, Benjamin Franklin's only son was um, illegitimate, a bastard. But that uh, he was raised just as if he had been a legitimate son. 
And the two of them were partners in politics and in military affairs and uh, later in diplomacy. Um, so it was an extraordinary father-son relationship. And the fact that they went different ways during the Revolution and that William Franklin um, became the governor, the royal governor of New Jersey, while his father, of course, was the greatest patriot, uh, drove them apart. And I thought, what a tragedy and what a great story. So I actually wrote a poem about this in the 1990s. And do you have that poem? Do I have it with me right now? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's, it was published long ago. And as often happens, because I, I was a, a poet before I became a biographer, several of my uh, poems have been transformed into these larger and more complete biographies. And well, a good case of that. And that's how it really stuck with you. I mean, it went from poetry to, to, uh, to nonfiction. And in the end, poetry is, is storytelling as well. And, uh, and that's what you're doing here. Talk to the, the listeners, because a lot of people don't know this about American history. This was no duck walk for ordinary Americans. It split families. It split fathers and sons. Some people were with the revolutionaries and the, and the patriots. Some were with the, with, the, with the crown. And some were just hiding under the table, hoping it would pass. How did this basically split up, particularly in the area where Franklin lived in Pennsylvania? Of course, the numbers changed. But at the beginning, uh, the majority of the people were against the revolution. And in fact... Uh, Benjamin Franklin and his son, in their works of diplomacy um, in England, tried to prevent the revolution. It was only after the British beca- uh, government became more and more oppressive and they sent troops to Boston um, that Benjamin Franklin finally became a patriot fairly late in the game, around 1775. Uh, so they both resisted the revolution. As far as the numbers are concerned, by 1776, um, I would say a third of the American people were for the revolution, a third were against it, and the other third were just trying to blow with the wind and try to, you know, try to um, try to keep out of trouble. And talk about now, uh, just briefly, we'll we'll open up the open up the lid on the next segment about this father son conflict, but. Were there, were there battles out in the streets? Was this quiet? Was this simmering? What was the what was the climate like for folks day to day? Obviously, Franklin had a, had something to do with newspapers as well. Talk about what it felt like then, because today all we hear about is my goodness, the climate today in America—it's just so hard. But my goodness, we have seen much tougher times in this country. Well, um, just as an example, um, during the the passing of the Stamp Act. Uh, there were riots in the streets in, uh, in Boston and Philadelphia. And by 1775, um, there was really open warfare in the streets of many cities um, over, the, um, over the tax, uh, the ver- various tax collectors, people protecting them, people attacking them. And uh, by 1776, there were these provincial uh, committees of safety who would um, actually hold individuals uh, accountable if they said anything that, uh, that seemed to be threatening to the um, movement for independence. And this was the point where Governor Franklin, you know, as the last royal governor of New Jersey, was defending, uh, defending the loyalists, the people who protected the crown. So it really was, uh, it was a revolution in, st- I mean, it was a uh, civil war in the streets of the major cities uh, all over all over America. Indeed, it was our first civil war. I mean, that's what I got from the book. I mean, we had one before we had one. This is that's Lee right. Habib, and this is 
Daniel Mark Epstein and his terrific book, The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House. More after these messages. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we return with the author Daniel Mark Epstein and the book The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House. Now we had talked about briefly, Daniel, uh, what Ben Franklin was like and his remarkable contributions to this country. There were very few men with his biography, maybe no American with his biography. And let's talk about that son. You said he was a bastard child. Talk about his life and how he got from being Ben Franklin's son to the governor of a state, and there weren't that many states back then. Well, he was, um, William Franklin was an extraordinary young man in his own right. Uh, People talk about Ben Franklin as being precocious as a businessman and a printer and a politician, Uh, but his son also was extraordinary. Um, His son wanted a military career, and so he went off and and joined, uh, joined the King's Army at age 15, and by the time he was 18 years old, he was a captain, which was the highest rank you could attain in America without um, paying for it. And um, at that point, he retired from the Army, and uh, his father got him a really good tutor, and he started studying law. And then he worked for his father um, in the um, legislature, in the Assembly of Pennsylvania, so he got this political career. And then when his father got the job to go off to England as the agent for the Assembly of Pennsylvania, representing the the Assembly against the proprietors who refused to be taxed, his son went with him. And in England, his son rose very quickly. Uh, He went to the bar uh, and got his law law degree in his mid-20s, and shortly after that uh, was appointed to be the governor of New Jersey. So at that point in his life, he was in his late 20s. His father was uh, 50, in his mid-50s. He was even more powerful in the uh, the government than his father was. So he had an extraordinary career. And so let's get down to this conflict. I mean, by the time we get to the Stamp Act, as we had indicated before, um, the, the country was in pretty much open rebellion and a civil war was brewing. And William took a stand, and Ben took a stand. And talk about uh, their final meeting in particular was remarkable. But before we get to that, build up to that if we can. Set up that, I, I think, almost just tragic scene between a father and son. Well, it's really extraordinary the extent to which the two men were living in different worlds. Because um, by 1775, two years before the actual uh, Declaration of Independence, uh, William had been living in America. He was the governor of New Jersey, and he'd been the governor of 
New Jersey for more than a decade uh, in trying to represent the king's interests in America and trying to prevent this revolution, which he knew would be a disaster. And a lot of people, even Benjamin Franklin up until 1775, felt it would be a big mistake for America to separate from the mother country. Meanwhile, his father is in England, and his father is still working on behalf of the colonies, representing the colonies' interests in, uh, in England uh, against Parliament. And he's seeing more and more corruption in, uh, in England, and uh, in the meantime, the, 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 the English government is sending troops to Boston and the rest of America in order to enforce these uh, taxation laws and he's growing more and more bitter against the uh, the English government, so that the two of them were living in different worlds. And when it finally came down to the uh, 1776 and the Declaration of Independence, uh, William was thoroughly on the side of the king and the crown, and his father at that point was a confirmed American patriot and revolutionary. So they just went different ways. Even before that, I think there was a certain amount of jealousy between father and son, as sometimes happens, tragically. Um, And um, his dad, I think, was a a little bit jealous of William. So let's talk next about this father and son. They're at loggerheads. What happens to William next as he takes his stand? The country is moving to war. It's clearly ready for war. William's not. Well, first of all, his father came home in time to try to talk his son over to the the side that he believed would be safest, uh, that is, the side of the revolutionaries. And the two had some very, very stormy confrontations um, in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey, uh, where where, uh, his father visited him, and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries, because that was his side and the family's side, and William refused. And William uh, ended up being the last, um, the last royal governor to do the king's business in America, uh, stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion, and had to be taken away bodily, and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield, Litchfield Jail, where he was in solitary confinement uh, with bread and water for 18 months. Uh, and suffered terribly during that time. Um, he finally was released in a prisoner's exchange, but his father had very little to do with that, and eventually went back to England. And this had to really hurt Ben Franklin. I mean, A, it's his son, and no matter what kind of jealousies might have existed, to watch this befall, this kind of plight befall your son, had to be difficult. Moreover, he's a very public figure, and it wasn't as if his son was some wallflower. He was a governor who was now in jail. How did he handle that? Well, Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life, and you have to believe that. And there was a lot of public criticism of him for not uh, for not helping his son out. But remember, he was the minister plenipotentiary to France, and could not be seen as being in collusion with uh, you know with a Tory. And so he was in a horrible, it's really a tragic situation, uh, which really is kind of like the, um, uh, the Revolutionary War in microcosm. And do you think he really understood his son's hardship? I don't. No, I don't really think. I think the, the part of the tragedy of the book and what I finally end up saying in the end is that these were two men who could never reconcile although the son wanted to, William wanted to more than his father did, they could never reconcile because they 
they just did not understand each other. And these were two very intelligent men. So it shows you just how extreme uh, this break between father and son can be when it happens. Yep, and, and in the end, the, the father didn't understand the son, but the son didn't understand the dad either. I don't think so. I don't. Part of the, what, what we haven't spoken about is that at the end of the war, William became a counter-revolutionary, a violent counter-revolutionary, and uh, this his father could not could not ever forgive. And indeed, he couldn't. And by the way, father-son's stories, well, they're riveting, always drawing everyone in. I mean, this is how Arthur Miller made his living, telling father-son stories. Heck, it's, it's how Bruce Springsteen's made his. And this is as good and as harrowing a father-son story as I've ever read. Daniel Mark Epstein, The Loyal Son, The War in Franklin's House. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And, you know, we love to do these stories about history. And as always, so often, we bring you this days in history by Hillsdale College. But stories like this are always brought to us by the fine folks at Hillsdale, too. And, my goodness, one of the things I had forgotten to ask uh, Daniel was what the similarities were today to then. Uh, and in large measure, that populist movement of the revolutionaries well, it came about because they had been felt like they'd been governed by a foreign and far off power, and that's of course the British Crown. And in large measure today, a lot of the populist movement, many people believe, is because there's a far off power called Washington D.C., and many people in this country feel like that foreign power or that far away power isn't responsive to their needs and to their lives. Again, as always, these stories, the stories about American history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. And folks, they have terrific, terrific online courses there on everything. And the one I'd most highly recommend to start things out is the Constitution 101, because it digs in and drills down on the founding fathers and what they were after as they created the most important document in world history. And many people believe that. It's not just us saying it. We don't have a lot of opinions here in the show. We just tell stories. And one of the stories coming up, we'll be doing a a long-form series on the Constitution and how it came to be. But go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And again, The Loyal Son is the book, The War in Franklin's House. And we learn in this story that there was a civil war in this country long before the Civil War. And it had started off with just a small minority of Americans wanting to fight the revolution. But ultimately, many more joined, many resisted, and again, many, well, they just hid, hoping it would all pass. And this story of Ben Franklin and his son, and his son being in, imagine this, solitary confinement for 18 months with bread and water. The most famous of the founding fathers, but for George Washington, and his son rotting in jail. What a story. Ben Franklin's story, his son's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about music. One of our favorite recurring segments is the story of a song. We've done all kinds. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look it up there on the topic section. I think we got about 20, everything from the doors to country music. One of my favorites, There Goes My Life, the story of Kenny Chesney's hit. But there are so many from every musical idiom. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Story of a song. And what were we listening to as we bumped in was Christina Aguilera's Candyman, which was written by our next storyteller, Linda Perry. According to Aguilera and Perry, the song was a tribute to the Andrews Sisters, iconic World War II song recorded in 1941, the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B. Ever wonder how a chart-topping hit single is made? Well, here's Greg Hengler. Most of our story of a songs have been based on timeless and relatively deep songs. What we are about to do now is tell the story of a song that falls into, let's say, a less profound category. To tell this story is former lead singer and songwriter of the early 90s rock group, Four Non Blondes, Linda Perry. Remember them? Linda Perry left the band in 1994, started two record labels, and began writing and producing hit songs for the likes of Gwen Stefani, Adele, Alicia Keys, and Christina Aguilera. Here she is to tell the story of how one of her hit singles was created. Perry said that the process of making the song was so unlike me. According to her, she was going through a weird phase during which she wanted to learn how to program drums. Here's Linda Perry. I'm very, you know, I'm always interested in things. And so, like, I, I called up a friend. I'm like, what's that sound out there right now that you're hearing on the radio and stuff? And they're like, oh, you got to get a Triton. It's a, called a Triton keyboard. I'm like, a Triton keyboard. All right. And then what? what's that sound on the drums? Like, what's that thing? It's obviously not real drums, but what's that? Oh, those are MPCs. You get these programs, and there are programmed sounds already. And you can create your own, and you just put it in. It loads these sounds, and you got kick snares. And I'm like, MPC, you know? And like, and then what would be like if you could get like a, a, a you know like a program of some sort that had like all different types of sounds? What would that be? Oh, that would be the rolling blah 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 expansion thing that has all these cards. Okay, great, thanks. You know, and so I go to Guitar Center and I buy all these things. I come back, I plug it all in, my MPC, my my whatever Triton, and so I'm like, okay, all right, all right. What does this thing do? Okay, let me. All right, well, let me start with the beat. Basic enough. All right, loop that down. Okay. I need a bass part that goes with that, and I can't find a bass sound, so I'm like, all right, let me just pick up my real bass for right now until I figure out with that. So I pick up my real bass, just sub it out. Boom, 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 boom. Do, 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 boom, boom, boom. All right, okay, cool. That's cool. All right. Oh, what's this thing doing? I'm opening up all the sound. Clav, you know, this, you know, horns, and I just start adding all these things. I mean, everything. I mean, I have harpsichord, clav, horns. 
I don't know what that sound is. I mean, just there's so many sounds going on, and I just add it all. Little percussions. Oh, percussions. Just like never in a million years. Percussions in here? And now I'm just fascinated, and I'm just having a good time. All right, okay, I need Wawa, and this doesn't have Wawa. Okay, I can get my guitar, but otherwise. All right. All right, now I need some kind of vocal, you know, and then I pick up my bullet microphone because I, I know I don't want to sound like Linda. This is a character. So I pull up a harmonica microphone, run it through this compressor, compress the hell of it. I'm like, okay, what is this song? You know, okay, now I'm going to do something Linda never does. Think, pre-think of lyrics, pre-think of a concept, you know, never done that before. So I'm like, okay. I'm gonna think of every cliche I can think of. And then I just started singing the song about, okay, I'm coming up, so you better get this part. And all the lyrics just started, you know, pull up to the bumper rub in my Mercedes Benz, you know, like just like joking and laughing as, and I'm like writing this stuff down as I'm singing. And then I record it. Literally, this all took place in a matter of 15 to 20 minutes, okay? 15 to 20 minutes. And then I'm done. It's already pre-mixed because everything is just all right there. I mean, you don't have to do much, you know, with that kind of stuff. I call up my manager. I play it to her on the phone, and she's all, what's that? I go, I just wrote a dance hit, and I knew it was a hit, you know. And she's like, well, you can't do it. I'm like, no, it's not for me. It's got to be for somebody else. Who do we think of, you know? And I'm thinking Madonna. I'm thinking, you know, we got to get it to whatever and life is just a beautiful thing. Life is just, it's, this is, the, again, the, the best thing I can just tell in general that has nothing to do with what you're talking about in this story, but life just wants to give. It wants to give you gifts. It has so many gifts to give you, but you just have to be open to receive them. Because once you're open, once you put your hand out, life is gonna give you a gift. A week later, this crazy girl calls me, leaving this radical message on my machine. It sounds like a nut, you know, like, I don't know what this girl's going on. Are you Linda from Four Non Blonde? I think she's a fan. It sounds like, who is this? My name is Pink, you know, I'm whatever. And I start asking, do you know Pink? Oh, yeah, this girl, she's a white chick R&B girl, pink hair. And then this video comes on, and I'm seeing this, there you go, bling, bling, ching, ching. And I'm like, no, this girl, she's got the wrong girl. Like, she wants to write with me or wants me to sing on her album. That's it. And when I met her, I was like, it was like we connected, bam. And then I played her, get the party started. I gave it to her. And I think it was two days later, she called me back or the L.A. Reid called my manager or something like that and said, we got our first single. Is Linda interested in writing some more with her? Get the Party Started was released November 2001 as the lead single to her album Misunderstood and peaked at number one on the American charts. It became a worldwide hit, reaching number one in Australia, Ireland, New Zealand, Romania, and Spain. In 2002, Pink headlined a tour of America, Europe, and Australia, the Party Tour, as well as becoming a supporting act for Lenny Kravitz's American Tour. 
thanks to this single, Pink was named the top female Billboard 200 artist of 2002. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Scope. And what a great story. Greg Hengler is always digging him out for us. And the story of his song, very different than the rest of our stories of this song, the way the song got put together. I remember when this song came out and the girls would just rush to the dance floor. I never figured out why women rush to some songs and not others. Guys don't generally rush out onto the dance floor. They follow, and they follow the lead and do their best, I think, most of us to just uh, come along and move along and dance along. But great storytelling as always, Greg. And by the way, the next time anyone talks to you about the Constitution or the founders, and it seems so ephemeral to you, a discussion about it, remember it was Benjamin Franklin during the constitutional debates who insisted that property rights and intellectual property rights be protected. And so we had both of them protected. Article 1, the patent. And so all of our arts spring from this. All of the ideas of all the storytellers that we feature, the writers, the artists, everything. Not just products, folks. Ideas protected by our founding fathers and the Constitution. None of American culture possible without it exporting it to the world. The story of a song, the story of let's get the party started here on Our American Story. Habib and this is Our American Stories and that's Steve Martin performing King Tut on Saturday Night Live. An actor, a writer, a producer, a musician. Steve Martin came to public notice in the 60s as a writer for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour and later as a frequent guest on The Tonight Show. In the 70s he performed his odd and offbeat and quirky comedy routines before packed national houses. He's returned to doing stand-up and also regularly tours with his bluegrass band, the Steep Canyon Rangers. We start this segment with Steve's classic stand-up comedy album called Let's Get Small. Recorded in San Francisco at a boarding house in 77, the album went platinum and peaked at number 10 on the Billboard pop charts. This album won the Grammy in 1979 for Best Comedy Album. In this clip, Steve gives hilarious takes on smoking. Well, not too many people smoking out there tonight. That's pretty good. <laughs> kind of bothers some people. If you're in a sleazy place like this and people start smoking, you know. It doesn't bother me in a nightclub because I'm used to it. If I'm in a restaurant though, and I'm eating and someone says, Hey, mind if I smoke? I always say, Oh, no, do you mind if I fart? <laughs> 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 it's 
one of my habits. <laughs> yeah, they got a special section for me on airplanes now. I quit once for a year, you know. <laughs> but I gained a lot of weight. <laughs> it's hard to quit. Um, you know, after sex, I really have the urge to light one up, huh? <laughs> See, I'm not a very tactful person. You ever start talking to someone and you forget what you're going to say and you're standing there going, uh, gee, I was going to say something, I forgot what it was. And they always go, well, it must not have been very important or you wouldn't have forgot it. I would say, oh, I remember, I'm radioactive. Shake. Okay, we're moving now, eh, folks? Yes, this is comedy. Right. Well, I decided I'm taking up smoking. My uh, doctor told me I wasn't getting enough tar. Now, the fun part of smoking is deciding what brand to smoke. Now, Virginia Slims, that's a woman's cigarette, right? What do they have, like little breasts on them or something? <laughs> Oh, here's another funny clip from that same album where Steve talks about how mad he is at his 102-year-old mother. I'm so mad at my mother. (laughs) I don't know. She's 102 years old. She called me up the other day. She wanted to borrow $10 for some food. (laughs) I said, hey, I work for a living. So I loan her the money. I have one of my secretaries take it down. And yesterday she calls me up and says she can't pay me back for a while. I said, what is it? So I worked it out whether I'm having her work on my transmission. <laughs> and if she can't fix that, I'm having her move my barbells up to the attic. <laughs> Oh, and every once in a while on Our American Stories, we want to just dig into a comic's life. We're going to be doing this over and over again over the next few months. Born Standing Up, A Comic's Life is a memoir released by Martin back in 2007. It chronicles his early life, his days working for Disneyland in the magic shop, working at coffee shops and clubs as a comedy act, his relationships, his eventual fame, and the reason why he quit stand-up comedy at the height of his fame in 1981. In this clip... We hear a portion of this fascinating look into the mind of a comic genius, read by Martin himself from his own audiobook. It starts with Steve's nonconformist chant. And now, let's repeat the nonconformist oath. I promise to be different. I promise to be unique. I promise not to repeat things other people say. I did stand-up comedy for 18 years. Ten of those years were spent learning, four years were spent refining, and four were spent in wild success. My most persistent memory of stand-up is of my mouth being in the present and my mind being in the future. The mouth speaking the line, the body delivering the gesture, 
Well, the mind looks back, observing, analyzing, judging, worrying, and then deciding when and what to say next. Enjoyment while performing was rare. Enjoyment would have been an indulgent loss of focus that comedy cannot afford. After the shows, however, I experienced long hours of elation or misery, depending on how the show went, because doing comedy alone on stage is the ego's last stand. My decade is the 70s, with several years extending on either side. Though my general recall of the period is precise, my memory of specific shows is faint. I stood on stage, blinded by lights, looking into blackness, which made every place the same. Darkness is essential. If light is thrown on the audience, they don't laugh. I might as well have told them to sit still and be quiet. The audience necessarily remained a thing unseen, except for a few front rows, where one sourpuss could send me into panic and desperation. The comedian's slang for a successful show is, I murdered them, which I'm sure came about because you finally realized that the audience is capable of murdering you. <laughs> Stand-up is seldom performed in ideal circumstances. Comedy's enemy is distraction, and rarely do comedians get a pristine performing environment. I worried about the sound system, ambient noise, hecklers, drunks, lighting, sudden clangs, latecomers and loud talkers, and not to mention the nagging concern, is this funny? Yet the seedier the circumstances, the funnier one can be. I suppose these worries keep the mind sharp and the senses active. I can remember instantly retiming a punchline to fit around the crash of a dropped glass of wine, or raising my voice to cover a patron's ill-timed sneeze, seemingly microseconds before the interruption happened. I was seeking comic originality, and fame fell on me as a byproduct. The course was more plodding than heroic. I did not strive valiantly against doubters, but took incremental steps studded with a few intuitive leaps. I was not naturally talented. I didn't sing, dance, or act, though working around that minor detail made me inventive. I was not self-destructive, though I almost destroyed myself. In the end, I turned away from stand-up with a tired swivel of my head and never looked back until now. A few years ago, I began researching and recalling the details of this crucial part of my professional life, which inevitably touches upon my personal life, and was reminded why I did stand-up and why I walked away. Fascinating, and what a writer. And we want to end where we started, and let's go back to Steve Martin's comedy album, Let's Get Small, and hear his hilarious insight into how it's impossible to be depressed when listening to the sound of a banjo. Not a happy sound, it was just... You just can't sing a depressing song when you're playing the banjo. You just can't go, Oh, death and grief and sorrow and murder. When you're playing the banjo, everything's okay, you know. Hey, Steve, your house is burning down. <laughs> I just thought the banjo was the one thing that could have saved Nixon, you know. <laughs> he went on television right at the right time. Went, Hi, everything's great. <laughs> when he was, I think it'd be great if he had been traveling around the country and got off the plane and said, I'd like to talk about politics, but first a little Foggy Mountain Breakdown. <laughs> Thank you.
to go to foreign countries and I get off the plane and people go, hey, do Foggy Mountain. Yeah, the banjo's so happy. I think, I think people who are out of work, instead of giving them money, we should give them a banjo. And they can go home and, did you get a job today, dear? Nope. <laughs> Doesn't matter, though. Oh, and we're cracking up here, and that's what we want to do. And we're going to be going back across the Pantheon. We're going to be bringing in Richard Pryor, Sid Caesar, Woody Allen's nightclub years. You want to hear a great stand-up, whatever you think of Woody personally, his movies, his Greenwich Village tapes, some of the funniest stuff you've ever heard. Uh, we've all got to laugh, and we got to enjoy ourselves. Steve Martin. And we're going to go out again where we started with Steve Martin singing King Tut. On Saturday Night Live. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this, Jesse. Dancing by the night. Enjoy the music. Ladies love to start. Rockin' for a mile. Rockin' tut. He ate a crocodile. He gave his life for tourism. 